Welcome, everybody, to the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. Of course, I'm your host, Andrew Cooperwriter, and today we'll be covering how the Kentucky Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission is getting closer to committing $42 million into research uh, with using psychedelics in order to treat opioid addiction. The Madison County NAACP decides to take what could be a unifying fight against flock cameras insert in the surveillance state and has decided to make it about race. Then finally, I'll go over what I did to upset the left last week. We'll have all that and more today on the Andrew Cabretter Show. But before I dig down into it, please make sure you like, comment, share, and subscribe. As always, I ask that you tell others about the podcast. Uh, and if you're listening on Facebook or YouTube or Twitter, you can always catch this podcast. It comes out Monday through Friday at 1 o'clock. And you can catch it on all major podcasting platforms. Simply log into Pandora, iHeart, Amazon, uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. The list goes on and on. And just search for The Andrew Cooperwriter Show, and you should be able to find us. And if you are listening to this on the podcasting platform, please make sure you leave a five-star review. And without further ado, let's get into it. But before I dig into the stories, I do want to show you something. I, uh, I won a, an award here from Constitutional Kentucky called the Defender of Liberty Award. I won that over this past weekend. And I know what many of you are thinking. Like Andrew, recently the Herald Leader called you a semi-celebrity. Uh, the Constitutional Kentucky is giving you the Defender of Liberty Award. Will this all go to your head? I can say beyond a shadow of a doubt, it absolutely will not go to my head. I promise I, I will remain grounded and I will not think too highly of myself. With that being stated, if anybody knows where I can get a cape that says Defender of Liberty on it that I could wear around, uh, I want it to be made of a high quality material. Uh, I want to make sure it looks good. I want it to be a traditional kind of superhero cape, Defender of Liberty. Um, I want to be able to throw it on. It needs to be able to match almost anything I'd wear because I will think I will wear that pretty often. I think I will. Um, and, I'd, and I'd like to have a high-quality cape that says Defender of Liberty. I, I just want to make sure, you know, everybody knows who I am as I'm walking around. Um, but as I said, I promise to remain grounded. Oh. Well, with that being said, uh, let's go to our first story. The Kentucky Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission, which some of you may have never heard of, it was formed in order to um, handle and, and deal with opioid addiction in the state. So a little while ago, I, I believe a couple of years ago, the Commonwealth of Kentucky won $478 million in a lawsuit against opioid uh, distributors over their, um, of course, creation in a way in their hand in creating the opioid epidemic in the way that they marketed, they failed to warn properly of the potential issues that could come out of opioids and their addiction and uh, the way they pushed them, they were found to be at fault. And so Kentucky was awarded $478 million in order to help treat the opioid issues and problems from these companies. Now, according to House Bill 427 that was passed in 2021, half the $478 million is going to local governments in order to help with local law enforcement and local addiction treatment issues. 
Then the other half is going to the state, and that half is to be managed by this commission. So the Kentucky Opioid Abatement Advisory Commission is in charge of spending right around about $240 million in order to fight opioid addiction in Kentucky. And to give you an idea of what this commission, how it's made up, this commission is made up of uh, the attorney general or whomever he picks uh, is the chair, then the state treasurer or someone that the state treasurer chooses, then the secretary for cabinet for health and family services uh, or somebody they appoint. And then one member is also appointed by the University of Kentucky Healing Communities team. Then you have one voting member appointed by the attorney general whom, who is supposed to represent the victims of the opioid crisis, one member appointed by the AG from the drug and treatment prevention community, one member appointed by the AG representing law enforcement, then just two other people appointed by the AG. And then you have two non-voting members appointed by the Speaker and the Senate President. So this is a committee, for those of you keeping track at home, that is six voting members who are appointed by or are the Attorney General himself, and then another three voting members that are not appointed by the Attorney General. So this is very much so the Attorney General's Commission, um, and they are to vote on how they're to spend this money. So essentially, the Attorney General has control over how to spend this money. And I want to point that out. To, to say that this is the AG's committee and there's no question about it. So as we talk about what they're doing and what they're saying, um, that does give you some questions that you can ask of the attorney general's office. Now, one of the first initiatives of the commission is to spend $42 million uh, on researching the use of psychedelics or uh, ibogaine in the treatment of opioid addiction. So uh, apparently there's some studies and things. This is the first of its kind to have this kind of study that is having this kind of money put into it from the states. But there's been some studies and some treatments over in other countries that use psychedelics in order to help treat addiction. And they use ibogaine in order to help treat addiction. And so no other state has done this. Um, but here, the Commonwealth of Kentucky is doing it, and the commission is getting closer and closer to finalizing that $42 million. This was announced a few months ago, but they recently had some hearings on it, and they heard from people who've received treatment by traveling overseas uh, in, to other areas to get the treatment or to help them. Now, at this point, I'm going to take off the news hat. So up till this, I was just telling you the news. And now I'm going to put on my commentary hat. And I want to remind everyone that this is just my opinion and you can hate me for it, but someone has got to say it. And I say someone has got to say it because there is no one else seeming to even question whether or not this is a good use of money. There's no media stories being wrote to outline any possible side effects or downsides to the spending of this. And even the commission itself is refusing, not exactly refusing, but is not hearing from people who have anything negative to say about it. And, and so they had this hearing on it and all the people who spoke about it, they were all asked by the commission to speak there. And they all had great, amazing things to say about the use of these psychedelics to treat opioid addiction, using ibogaine to treat opioid addiction. And there was nobody that they asked to speak. That would that said anything bad about it. It's just kind of odd. There's no one representing the other side of side of this. There's nobody talking about potential side effects, and they're not an answering some of the key questions. If this is such a wonder treatment, 
as the testimony they heard claim, then why do we even need to study for it? Why is it not already approved? See, that's the problem. This is a Schedule One drug that isn't already approved for uses of treatments. That must mean that there are some side effects or issues with it, maybe. At least you should be asking. Now, understand that there can be one-off anecdotal success stories from people like we've seen in this commission. And I'm not saying anything to downplay their results, but may remind you that people claim things like cough medicines, as we recently found out, SSRIs to treat depression, masks, COVID vaccines. These were all wonder drugs. And we went on to find out that some of them were useless and were actually only having a placebo effect, while others were far, far less effective than originally suggested at dealing with the problem that they were reported to deal with. Therefore, as unscientific, as dumb as it may sound, I've started to just kind of trust my common sense and my gut more when it comes <clears throat> to the world of medical treatments and medication, because the medical research community has shown it is completely compromised. So like I said, I know it's going to sound stupid, but I'm going to go with my common sense, my gut on this, and say that I think this isn't such a great idea. And let me explain why my common sense is telling me that. And as I said, this isn't to downplay any of the positive results other people have seen. And I understand that we, if we can find a, a silver bullet and a wonder drug or a wonder solution that fix our issues with addiction, well, then our society and country would be so, so much better off. But perhaps that wonder solution doesn't exist because how people fall prey to addiction isn't exactly a one-off situation, but it deals with a mix of things. And what I mean by that, and this is why my first gut and common sense tells me that this maybe isn't a great idea. I mean, every time we've looked at uh, addiction treatments and, and the vast majority of people I know that have fought addiction and have won have used processes that involve uh, surrendering yourself to faith, coming to a higher power of some sort, while also doing the hard work uh, of getting back into that workforce, working and finding more purpose in your life and reconnecting and finding a reason uh, greater than your addiction um, that is is gives you that motivation to overcome. But I understand a lot of people fall back. Okay, so let me tell you, kind of kind of explain my common sense here. So, treating people who are prone to being addicted to uh, addictive medicines or drugs that alter your mental state is not a great idea. It's not a great idea to treat those people who those addicts with another medicine that can also be addictive. Look, everyone deals with their own demons and temptations. For some people, it's gambling, sex, money. And for some others, it's addictive drug substances such as opioids or even alcohol that affect your mental state. Not everyone reacts the same way to everything this, the same. I mean, millions of people drink alcohol. Millions of people take opioids. I mean, vast, vast majorities of them uh, take opioids. Opioids, sorry. Uh, in fact, almost one in five adults have filled a prescription for opioids in the last year. So despite that so many people are taking these, a vast majority of them don't become addicted. Almost, like I said, everyone at some point gets prescribed an opioid. 
about 70% of adults have drank alcohol in the past year. Almost every adult has drank alcohol at some point. And yet, not everyone becomes addicted to these substances. Actually, the majority of people who use them don't become addicted to their substances because that specific thing is just not their demon. So whether it is genetic, cultural, caused by something else, those that are addicted to opioids have shown that they can easily become addicted to chemicals that alter their body chemistry. And there's a reason why. Anybody who spends a lot of time around former addicts knows that they tend to stay away from alcohol. Um, if, if you're addicted to opioids, they still tend to stay away from alcohol uh, because it's thought that that would lead you to using in other ways. And then also as well, they tend to drink a lot of caffeine and smoke cigarettes or, or use tobacco of some sort just because they have a natural addiction to those chemical type substances. And generally speaking, we look at those chemical substances as not as quote unquote debilitating to your life as some of the others. So let's say you're treating a person who's addicted to mind altering chemicals. And so you're going to treat them with more mind altering chemicals that can be addictive. And I understand it's uncool to point out things like mushrooms, DNTs, other psychedelics, even marijuana, can be and are addictive substances to some people. Well, some of those things may not create a chemical addiction. And when they say that those things are not addictive, that's what they mean. It doesn't create a chemical addiction in the sense that you don't necessarily go through withdrawal symptoms that can end in death while you're dealing with uh, getting coming off those items if you don't use them. But let's not pretend that we don't know people who are addicted to these exact substances. And by addicted, I mean they have let it destroy their lives, lose jobs, lose relationships, create strife within your family. I mean, I know people, you know people. I, I know people, you know, if, if you're married, for example, and your spouse says, hey, can you stop doing that? It makes me uncomfortable. So if, if your spouse says, hey, can you stop smoking weed, it makes me feel uncomfortable. And I'm saying this, I'm a, I obviously, for those of you who are unaware, I'm a younger guy. Uh, I'm 31 years old. I'm 31 years old, I believe. Uh, <laughs> my wife can correct me later. Um, I believe I'm 31 years old. And so obviously, I know a lot of young people. It's not a secret that people around my age and younger will sometimes be the type that smoke marijuana. And I know plenty of people, even married couples, where that is an issue in their relationship, where they say, hey, look, I really don't want you smoking weed. And if, if this thing isn't a big deal and you're not addicted to it or addicted to the way it makes you feel, well, then just don't do it. It's not worth the strife. There's literally nothing in my life. You know, I enjoy drinking a cold beer. I do. At the end of my day, I enjoy drinking cold beer. And if my wife came to me and said, ah, you know what? I feel uncomfortable with the amount you're drinking. Well, I might be a little offended just in the sense of me being like, honey, I like, I'm drinking like uh, one or two beers like every couple of days. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that would be odd to me, right? Um, but at the same hand, if my wife came to me and was like, look, I just don't want you to drink alcohol anymore. I, I would be a little weirded out by that she's asking, but I wouldn't just keep doing it to create strife in the relationship. And any married man or woman knows exactly what I'm talking about. If it becomes a big deal in a relationship and it's creating strife, I don't need to do it. It's weird that it's becoming a big deal, but I don't need to do it. And so if something isn't supposedly addicted to you, well, there's no reason to create strife in your relationship over it. Just stop doing it. But yet there's tons of people that I know that you know, I'm, I know you know, 
that this is a point of strife in their relationships, in their marriages, and yet people continue to do it. So I, I get it. It's not cool to say that these things are addictive, but I think we're lying to ourselves if we don't be honest here. And these things are at least uh, the state they can put you in, the mental state, the feeling you get as you do it can be mentally addictive. Maybe not physically, but they can be mentally addictive and they can be debilitating in the sense that you're spending tons of your money on that instead of other things. I mean, if, if you don't have the money to support your habit, uh, you know, maybe you're not getting as much for your kids, those kinds of things that can certainly be an issue. And so we should be able to not pretend like these things are all hunky dory and there's no downside, especially when we're talking about spending $42 million in order to help addicts and we're spending $42 million from government funds in order to help addicts. So my first common sense check says that using possibly addictive chemical substances to treat people who are addicted to chemical substances is a bad idea. But what else in my common sense brain before I've even listened to the anecdotes of people like stood before the commission tells me that this may not be a good idea for Kentucky or to treat addiction. Well, a lot of the investors and funders of the companies that are researching this treatment, they're funded by the same investors and companies that made millions and billions off the opioid crisis to begin with. So you have a problem that all these people created and a lot of these people made big, big bucks off of it. And now you're turning to those same people who've profited from it. You're giving them $42 million and you're saying now solve our problems. That just seems wrong. You're turning to the same people, the big pharma who created the problem. And now you're asking them to solve the problem. It's like a dentist owning a candy shop, but instead of selling candy, they're just destroying lives. I mean, this really makes you wonder why this commission only heard from promoters and not detractors. I mean, what's going on here? Just try to Google, is Ibogaine addictive? And see what top results are. And then go Google what hallucinogens, what if, if hallucinogens are addictive. You get two pretty different results. Where one is all about how amazing Ibogaine is. And then the other talks about the dangers of hallucinogens and how they can be possibly addictive, which Ibogaine is. And here's my point. This is a first of its kind type of, of spending, of research that's coming from a state. We shouldn't be afraid of talking about possible downsides of this. And what my gut tells me, and what I normally find, is that if Big Pharma, Google, and the government are all pushing a narrative that something is fine and completely okay and it's wonderful, and it's definitely worth putting $42 million into, then it probably isn't. And we need to be asking more questions. And now that I've successfully upset some people who listen to my podcast that for some reason just absolutely love psychedelics, uh, coming up after this, I will go into how Madison County NAACP says cameras are now racist. So Madison County and Richmond are now going to join several other Kentucky cities in their use of flock cameras. Now, I did an episode where I um, have priorly talked about the use of flock cameras 
and the growing surveillance state. But to sum it up, flock cameras are part of a surveillance net that uses AI to track citizens' movements and then will alert police when there is suspicious activity or the camera spies someone that the police have told the camera that they're looking for. Now, of course, departments will claim time and time again that using flock cameras isn't an invasion in, in privacy and they're only tracking this or that. But in fact, as I just claimed, AI is watching us for the police, um, which they're doing. I mean, even the police will try to claim that that is misinformation. When I just say AI is watching us and the police are putting up cameras asking AI to watch us because they just can't simply be bothered to, they will try to say that is information. But they betray themselves when they say things like what the... Uh, Chief of police there in Richmond said during a KYT report when he said that it would save us uh, staffing, it would save us manpower of having to place somebody at the intersections to watch the intersections when we're looking for somebody because now we can just use the cameras. But um, if you're saving somebody looking at the intersection, well, somebody has to watch the camera. And if you're trying to watch the camera closely, because clearly, if you're looking for somebody to the point that you're going to put the police at the entrance and exits and major intersections looking for them into the town and out of the town, well, then you're clearly very closely looking for them. And so if you're not going to have somebody staring at that one camera watching for them constantly, uh, then that means you're going to have to have an AI. You're going to have to have automated watching going on to watch what is happening. And, uh, uh, you know, and so that's what it means. It means we have an AI that then begins to watch us at the behest of the government um, when we put up these flock cameras. You see, in the report from uh, WKYT as well, um, it covers a few different issues and concerns, uh, not just from the police, even they admit that this is kind of a controversial thing, but it also has some other people that talk in it. It doesn't really hit upon, though, what I think is most important when we start talking about AI tracking you and storing data. And I don't think you necessarily have to put on a tinfoil hat. You don't got to make one to see how citizens being constantly tracked by AIs with all of our movements and behaviors being available to the government at the drop of a hat is not a good thing. Remember, the average citizen unknowingly breaks sometimes as much as four or five laws a day. There are some natural checks that we have that have priorly existed to protect our rights and from government infringement. Natural checks that keep government from passing silly, stupid laws because there's no way for them to enforce them. It's not a reasonable thing for them to enforce. And so, therefore, they can't afford to pass it because government and policing power needs to be focused on the, on the real issues like theft, murder, and victim crimes and not just tracking citizens. That's what key has kept, sorry, police off uh, the back of citizens and has kept the nanny state from coming into play. But now that we have AIs able to watch everything we do, and everything can be tracked, it certainly can have a chilling effect on rights. I mean, how willing would you be to speak out against government overreach, injustice, call out your local mayors, police chiefs, sheriffs, legislators, governors, or even presidents if you know that you can be retaliated against, they can go to the cameras, they can watch what you do every day, and they can figure out when you're breaking that law and make sure that they come arrest you. Laws you don't even realize you're breaking. And I've covered laws that you can be arrested for, you can have all your assets seized for, that you won't even know you're breaking, that most people don't even know it's a law in some prior episodes. I mean, we've already acknowledged that our government does things like under Obama, where it will target people 
based upon their political leanings. If you remember during the Obama administration, there was a scandal, but the IRS auditing conservative people and conservative nonprofits. So it's not unheard of that uh, uh, governments and elected people would use these types of programs in order to target their political enemies. And keep in mind, this isn't, and people say, well, it's a lot about stopping crime. Well, flock cameras don't really stop crime because it can't arrest anybody when the crime's being committed. I guess it can surveil the area and then you could maybe arrest them later on possibly, but it, it, it only helps solve those cameras that Ha or solve those cameras, solve those crimes that occur within the view of the cameras. The cameras are really just about tracking people. That's what it's about. And yeah, they can say it's about tracking those citizens who we all agree should be kept off the street, but that means in the process, they're also tracking you. As a police, Richmond police chief says, the camera is simply there to watch intersections in order to watch citizens like us, you know, Big Brother, always watching. Like I said, I cover this uh, in greater detail in prior episodes. So you know I'm against flock cameras. Okay, so I'm against flock cameras. Well, in comes the NAACP to do what they always do. They take an issue where you could raise broad support to push back against, and then you add in a stupid viewpoint that makes people like me now have to defend flock cameras on one front. Uh, let's take a look at this report. Richmond, Madison County, NAACP President Mitchell Brown says there's been some pushback on flock cameras across the nation. They were found to be in the black neighborhoods two and a half to three times more than other neighborhoods within that community. And that was really was being seen as racial profiling. Well, and there it is. Um, Madison County NAACP President Mitch Brown says flock cameras are obviously clearly and quite quite unequivocally racist and used for racial profiling um unless of course and he goes on to say this in the report that they're placed equitable throughout the city so flock cameras are okay as long as it's watching everybody mitch has a problem if it's only watching the minority neighborhoods but if it's watching everybody then there's no problem which would leave you a question to say. So, so you have, you're almost proving our point. So you say flock cameras can be misused by government to racially profile in his words, but he at least agrees that it can be used and misused by government. And instead, later on in the report, he goes on to support flock cameras. You just got to make sure you put them up everywhere. So that way everybody's being equally watched by the government because that's the only fair thing to do. But of course, as well, the placement of flock cameras in these minority neighborhoods has nothing to do with racial profiling. And this is what I hate. You know, we joke all the time, not joke, but we talk all the time about how these issues like on race and others are just there to divide us so we cannot unite and fight something together. And this is a exact example of how the NAACP is dividing us. Because, you know, Mitch here has received these talking points on flock cameras from the NAACP central office, clearly. He's in Madison County. He has no idea what's going on elsewhere. He's being informed by the NAACP on what to say. And now he's trying to push a racial narrative because what it does is, is it takes people like me and possibly you, good conservatives, who could be with you on removing flock cameras that would join you in saying flock cameras are bad. It chills uh, uh, free 
freedoms and you know what we really need are police who can arrest in those areas to deal with this not just putting up a camera that's a band-aid that's not solving any issues it's not going to help us identify anything i mean i was i was talking to a friend of mine that works in community outreach and gang violence and he says nowadays um they're all wearing the same thing they all wear you know uh, jeans or pants black hoodies with the hoods pulled up and they'll wear a mask, you know, maybe that's COVID mask or other masks. They'll slap those on and you can't even identify them anyways. Most, uh, most of the criminals doing it. Right. So you take something where I could be with you on, and then you throw in this race narrative, this stupid viewpoint. And it just drives people apart and it stops them from uniting against government overreach. And you see what old Mitch is saying is that because slot cameras go up in higher crime areas typically, and high, higher crime areas happen to have a greater ratio of minorities for a plethora of reasons, then flock cameras are of course clearly racist. As if city planners and police are sitting around a table and asking, well, do, where do we wanna put these cameras up? And they go, well, there's a lot of crime in this area, but this is a white neighborhood, so we can't put one up there. I'm sure race doesn't even enter the minds of these people as they're putting up the cameras, as they're thinking about how they can subject all of us. Um, but they, they, as they're putting up these cameras, I, I mean, they are putting up these cameras because they're saying, look, this is high crime area. Let's throw them up here first. Let's use the excuse. Let's, let's make sure in order to get buy-in for everybody to be watched by Big Brother, let's first put them in these areas and then we can claim that they've solved a lot, a lot of crimes. Uh, and, and it's better where we put up this camera instead of, you know, what may be actually happening is just, it puts police more into that area that are catching people could be a plethora of issues, uh, reasons why that crime improves in that area that has nothing to do with the camera. But, but they'll say, let's, let's put up a camera in a high crime area where we can make an impact. So when we make an impact, we can show lower numbers to give us an excuse to put up cameras everywhere. But instead of saying something like that, he instead brings race into it. Because they're not sitting around doing that. They're saying, okay, we can only put up four cameras. We want to get more funding to put up more cameras elsewhere. We want the citizens to put buy-in. So if we can only put up so many few cameras so citizens don't feel like they're being watched right away by Big Brother, then we'll put them up in high crime areas and get people to sell out their rights for a little bit of safety. And if anything, what they're talking about doing when they're expending uh, uh, resources, policing resources in neighborhoods that are predominantly minority, I, I would think that's the opposite of racism. I mean, we are expending taxpayer resources and dollars in an area to make it safer for those citizens. Areas, by the way, that probably don't generate enough tax revenues to offset the money being spent. So they're sucking up resources from everyone else in town or county or city or country or, or state or wherever the taxing base is for that, and then deploying them into high crime neighborhoods so the good people there can live and walk home in safety or wait at bus stops without getting shot and drive by, something that happened in Louisville recently. So wanting safer areas for citizens is somehow racist. Redistributing resources to help areas be safer is now somehow racist. Seems like the opposite of racism to me when a town is trying to help citizens in need, especially those living in high crime areas, that some of which happen to be minority neighborhoods. So in conclusion, flock cameras are bad, but they're not racist. And police putting resources into high crime areas is also not bad and the opposite of racism. Just instead of putting up cameras, 
need to put officers there. We're putting Band-Aid on solutions. I get it. It's harder and harder and harder to hire officers. But replacing officers with cameras isn't going to be a way we protect our rights or solve crime. Well, coming up after this, I'm going to go over what I did to upset the left last week. It'll be right after this short break. All right. So over the weekend, I posted uh, this here. I posted on Facebook and Twitter. Um, on Facebook, it got a whole lot more traction. On Twitter is is where we saw quite a few lefties get upset. But anyways, uh, it's this post here. It says, I've walked past at least 10 people today wearing a cloth mask outside. So on Saturday, I was outside somewhere. I was not in Lexington. I was not in Louisville. It doesn't really matter where I was. Y'all don't need to know. Don't need you y'all stalking me. I'm just kidding. You guys want to stalk me. Except for that one guy, that lefty that hate watches this. But anyways, um, so I was outside. And it was a pretty wide open area. And I, I literally was walking. I was walking with my wife and uh, a couple uh, friends of ours or friends of ours that is a couple. Uh, you know how married people have couple friends. Um, but anyways, and so we're walking around and, uh, people are walking past me and I, I start counting and I counted over 10 people outside wearing cloth masks. They're not even wearing N95 masks. They're wearing cloth masks and it made, it, it makes absolutely no sense. And, and, and I don't really need to describe this to all of you who listen to this. You know that time and time again, data has shown that cloth masks do nothing, that if anything does anything, it's KN95. And KN95 masks shouldn't be worn for hours and hours and hours a day on end, um, that they have issues too as well, uh, that if you don't properly air them out and, and clean them out before you wear them, you bring in harmful carcinogenins from the wrapping and packaging and, and so on and so forth. And so we all know that those issues um, exist. So I posted that. But and the other thing is, is that there's no scientific reason for wearing masks outside. There's none. So everybody's heard that whole six feet thing. Well, um, it was actually three feet. They picked six feet to remain safe. Uh, that is just factual. That's what it is. Um, I've been a part of many a court cases where uh, um, where I've been the the person making the complaint uh, on these COVID things. And you know, I've heard time and time again, Ken for Health and Family Services here in the state, the CDC asked, "How do you arrive at six feet?" Uh, and they'll say, "Well, it's actually three feet, and we doubled it." So it's really three feet. Okay. So you're three feet. You're, and that's inside. You're outside. You have a lot of disbursement, a lot of area to breathe. Wearing a cloth mask already doesn't do anything uh, for COVID. Might help with flu, I guess, but it doesn't do anything for COVID. And it most certainly um, doesn't help with, um, uh, you know, when you're, when you're outside, there's, there's no reason for it. And also too, as well, remember masks are worn for you, not for them. And so if you're wearing a mask because you're sick, um, well, you don't need to be going to populated areas. Just stay home if you're sick. If you're so sick, you need to wear a mask. You should stay home until you get over your sickness. Um, there's no reason for you to be walking around outside, especially where I was at. That was not a necessary place for anybody to be. Um, it was a place where nobody should ever go again. Uh, but anyways, um, so, you know, people walking around outside. So I post that post there. And I get a uh, comment here um, from somebody. It says, uh, Peaches Leah, whoever that is, says, I wear a mask sometimes because my father gets chemo and I want to protect him. Maybe you shouldn't be so judgmental. 
To which I responded, nah, I'll keep judging people. I mean, aren't we supposed to judge people for not following the science? Even your reasoning doesn't make sense on why you wear one outside walking around in public. And so obviously, uh, I am correct um, that uh, clearly, I mean, I have the show here. So clearly, I'm the correct one. Um, because, you know, one, it's them who judge us for not wearing a mask. I mean, it's, it's just like them, right? These people who wanted uh, us to go out of business, that wanted a million people laid off, wanted everybody to stay home, wanted to force everybody to take a medical treatment, wanted to hold people down and force them or make them stay home unless they go out there. All these people that during all this time, judged constantly. I mean, you should hear the complaint line that goes on. One of these days, I'm going to play some of these calls that went into the complaint line that Annie Bashir set up for people to complain about non-mask wearers. Um, but th these people that lost their minds on all these things now suddenly have the gall to tell us not to judge people. It's ridiculous. And so um, she comes back and says, Keep judging people when you know nothing about their life or health. Very Christian of you. Uh, and then I responded, health has nothing to do with wearing a mask outside. It literally does nothing for your health. At that point, she didn't respond. Now, I didn't respond to the Christian comment. I'm going to set that one to the side for a second. I'm going to deal with the first point, which was it has nothing to do with your health. Literally nothing. Uh, and that was my point, is that this is unscientific. There's a reason why we're judging you for walking around wearing a mask outside. You know, if you're somebody who, who wants to wear a mask because you're going into the hospital and you're in the waiting room and you're close to a lot of people and your immune system's low or you yourself are sick. And so you want to wear a mask to protect others from getting your flu or, or what have you, whatever you have. Uh, and you're in the doctor's office. That makes some sense. But if you're going to be outside walking around, regardless of your parents getting chemo treatments or not, it, that literally does nothing to you. If you had the flu and you're walking around outside, Literally, you don't. Who are you stopping from getting that guy over there who's 20 feet away from you, who's also walking around outside in a heavily dispersed area? Are you spitting into his eye or mouth? As long as you're not spitting, physically spitting into their eyes or mouth, you're outside. You don't need to worry about your aerosols mixing in. I mean, that just time and time again, science has proven this. And this is a, a, a point. People say, why do you care? Why do you care? Well, I care because people did things like shutting down beaches and parks. My son couldn't play on a playground during the year 2020 and into 2021 because uh, the city of Lexington decided that kids being outside playing on a playground was just too much of a risk based upon what? And we have got to break this down. We've got to get people to stop believing this because here's the thing. They get told one thing and they latch onto it. It's not just with scientific things, but there are still people out there who believe Trump's a Russian plant despite it being dispelled. There are people out there who still believe that there's no evidence that Biden committed anything despite the fact that Hunter Biden has text messages where he's talking about how he pays all of his father's bills. They latch on to this thing that they're told and even when it's disproven, they just can't accept it. And maybe a part of it is, is that if they accept that they were wrong all along, what they're doing was, was wrong. It means that they didn't get to be next to maybe their parent or their grandparent when they passed away. And they applauded about it. Or their kid didn't go to school and is now behind and they applauded about it. 
or their small child is slowly learning to speak when they shouldn't be because they plotted about it or somebody they know got the shot and, and maybe had complications from it and they encouraged them to get it. You see, here's the thing. It's not just about admitting you were wrong. That's not their only problem here. The problem for admitting they were wrong is that what it means an implication behind everything else that they did. They did all these other things. And if they find out that they were wrong while they were doing it, I'd be more than a lot of them could actually handle. They have to be right because that would mean they took everything away from so many people for nothing. And nobody wants to be the villain of their own story. Let's go back to her other point, though. She said, it's not very Christian of me to judge others. And I love hearing from a bunch of godless pagans about how Christianity is supposed to be. And I'm honest when I say godless pagans, um, because these people are worshiping many idols, not just God, even if they claim to be Christians. Because when you have a belief that when you become a Christian, you now lose the ability to have any opinions or judgments of others, well, that's not what it's about at all. And I get it. You've read one passage or two that has said before you start judging the sawdust in his eye, pull the splinter out of your own. Or the passages that say, do not judge others or you yourself will be judged. Those passages that these Christians have heard so-called Christians have heard, but have never had explained to them in context of the situation. Because the Bible also says that do not listen to judgments unless there are judgments from the righteous. The Bible also has passages where they say, cannot you, a council of people, judge others? Are you not able to do that? In fact, the idea of having a jury of your peers that judges you for a crime is biblical. That comes from the Bible, where it talks about a council of people to judge somebody. The Bible doesn't call on you never to judge anybody or make discernments. What it's saying is, is you're not to judge somebody else's sins as if you're God or Jesus. You're not to damn somebody else for their sins. What the Bible says isn't you're not allowed to have opinions when it's talking about care about the splinter in your eye before you care about the sawdust in someone else. That's not the Bible isn't saying you shouldn't have judgments. What it's saying is, is don't be a hypocrite. If you're going to judge somebody for doing something, make sure you yourself aren't doing it. I get it. We can get into all kinds of biblical discussion about what that means or this means or this means or that means. But I tell you what, if anybody out there is a Christian and telling you, love everybody, don't judge anyone at all. You can't have an opinion and you certainly can't voice it. Well, they're not asking you to do God's work because how are you going to lead somebody on the right path if you're not willing to tell them in voice that they're wrong? You know, people love to point out, and I heard recently Jelly Roll, um, so-called country music artist. And I say so-called because his current songs are country. They're good. I listen to him. But he he priorly was more of a hip-hop rapper. Um, he recently talked about Christians now these days, you know, 
Jesus spent his time with the prostitutes and the whores and blah, 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 blah. And Christian now these days are so judgmental and blah, 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 blah. He did spend time with them, but he didn't spend time with them and then tell them continue being prostitutes and whores and, and awful people and sinful behaviors. He spent time with them to lead them to the right way. And that's the point they're missing. You shouldn't shy away from people because they're living sinful lives. But you also shouldn't shy away from telling them the truth. Well, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. I know, obviously, my, my biblical takedowns aren't always uh, necessarily the greatest. I try the hardest I can. I'm not a pastor. So, um, you know, just my, I guess, my opinions, right? There you go. We can all have opinions. But anyways, well, that's what we have time for today on the Andrew Cooperwriter Show. I thank you all so, so much for joining me. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 1 o'clock. Have a great rest of your day.